This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Liz, good morning, and it's so great uh, to have this show today. We're, uh, we're talking about the Curtis Flowers case, which had such an impact uh, on Mississippi, and, and we're fortunate to have four of the lawyers who were in, very directly involved in that case and, and excited to talk to them about this. Uh, and this is a case that every Mississippian should know something about. And, and I'll, I'll introduce uh, each, each of the lawyers that are here and ask them to please tell us a little bit about their background and, and their role in the Curtis Flowers case. And, and we'll start um, with Jonathan Abram, who is a lawyer with Hogan Lovells. Jonathan, would you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved? Sure. I have been at, with Hogan back before it was Hogan Lovells uh, for probably 35 years. I ran the pro bono practice at the firm for some years, and I now do nothing but public interest litigation. I've done I don't know how many death penalty cases uh, in my career, and I've done a lot of other public interest litigation relating to environmental and uh, voting rights and other issues. Um, I got involved in this case because Tucker and I go way back to uh, when Tucker was at the uh, District of Columbia Public Defender Service, and uh, we were we we knew each other back then, and uh, so about six or so years ago, six or seven years ago, when Curtis's last conviction, sixth after the sixth trial, was was upheld, uh, uh, Tucker and I got involved. Uh, on the post-conviction side, reinvestigating the case, and we'll talk more about that. Fantastic. And you mentioned Tucker Carrington. So, Tucker, you uh, are the director of the, the uh, George Cochran Mississippi Innocence Project, named for our, our former colleague, who our wonderful colleague, George Cochran, who passed away uh, the last couple of years. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved. Well, Richard, thank you for having us, and good morning. Um, uh, I got involved just like Jonathan said, except Jonathan was being a little bit kind. I actually got a call about to gauge my interest, my offices and clinics interest in the case. And I, um, I really hesitated to get involved because we're a small clinic, um, just a couple of lawyers and we teach. And so um, we do the cases we do, but we don't have a ton of resources. I knew about the, the Flowers case because I had been in Mississippi for a while, um, but I had I had some concerns about whether we should get involved because I knew um, or I had some sense of the size of the case, the importance of the case, um, and I didn't want to commit to something you know that we couldn't follow through on, among other things. But as John, I didn't know Jonathan was going to be on the call. Um, I knew I knew Jonathan was there at Hogan Lovells. Um, but anyway, he was on the call with a couple of other associates whom I did not know. I do now quite well. And um, I trusted Jonathan, had good experience with him before. The case was compelling and essentially 
you know, within a half an hour or something, I couldn't, couldn't say no. Um, and, uh, it, it turned out to be a tremendous experience professional, um, as well as a great experience representing Mr. Flower. So that's in, in short, that's how we got involved, Richard. Fantastic. And, you know, it really was a, an amazing team. Uh, Henderson Hill is here with us. He's a noted capital defense attorney. Um, Henderson, would you tell us about, about your role in the case and your background? Sure. Uh, well, good morning, Richard, and uh, thank you for including me in this conversation. And I'll start with that. Uh, it's just been a privilege uh, working with these guys and the team that's not here uh, on this case, some of the most talented lawyers in the country. Uh, I'm with the Capital Punishment Project of the ACLU, and uh, Rob McDuff and I have been uh, chasing each other's shadows uh, for 40-some-odd years. We were actually classmates in law school. Um, did not really know each other then, but you know, for the 40 years thereafter, uh, we've only been separated by one person, I think, in 10 different episodes. So uh, after Flowers was decided, I, of course, read the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court opinion, uh, was thunderstruck by it, uh, um, an amazing uh, analysis of our country's race history, actually, uh, by Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, and I got a call from Rob, uh, which was actually following a call from one of our mutual friends about the interests. And uh, when Rob and um, Tucker reached out to me, Tucker, I've known from our prior association as a public defender service alumni, uh, I saw the, the talented nature of the team and thought it would be a privilege to join. I've spent uh, the greater part of 39 years uh, doing uh, criminal defense work. I call it public defender work. And uh, the last 10, 15 years uh, with a special focus on racial equity issues in the criminal justice system. So it was a privilege uh, to join the team. Well, and it's certainly a privilege having you here today. And, and it's also a privilege, you mentioned Rob McDuff, and Rob is the, uh, the fourth lawyer who's here today. Rob is with the Mississippi Center for Justice in Jackson and a well-known uh, civil rights lawyer in, in our state. Uh, really, really uh, an honor to have him here. Rob, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this case. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having us. Um, I had a, you know, I've had a, had a fairly long career uh, in the law. My office uh, is and has been for a long time based in Jackson. I've done a lot of civil rights cases and I've done a lot of criminal defense cases and I've done a number of cases at the intersection of those two areas. Um, I had some familiarity with the Curtis Flowers case because after the fifth trial, uh, the judge ordered the one holdout juror arrested for allegedly perjuring himself during the jury examination phase of the trial. I was called by Curtis's then lawyer about this, and I represented that gentleman. I had had some experience with Prosecutor Doug Evans in another case where he failed to disclose exculpatory evidence. We obtained a new trial and a, and a not guilty verdict. So in the... Um, Late spring of 2019, after the argument in the U.S. Supreme Court, but before the Supreme Court decision, uh, Tucker Carrington, who's a, who's a longtime friend uh, and who was part, part, of, part of the team for many years at that point and the Flowers defense, called me and said um, they were looking for a lawyer to uh, defend Curtis if the case was 
successful in the Supreme Court and if it was sent back for a potential seventh trial, a Mississippi trial lawyer, and he asked me, would, would I be interested? And I said, I certainly would. And I met with, uh, with the whole team. We had, we had a big meeting up in Washington, D.C. at Jonathan Sturm's office. I met with Curtis on death row at Parchman, and, and it's a, it a wonderful team of lawyers, a wonderful client. Curtis is just one of the, one of the nicest and, and most impressive people you could meet, and I was, um, I was very pleased to be, to be able to become involved in this historic case and, and work with this great team of lawyers. Well, it really is. Again, I, I can't thank you all enough for being here. And I, I have to ask this question to start. I mean, Curtis Flowers was tried six different times for the same crime. How is that? How is that not double jeopardy? Uh, and it really, um, any anyone that can answer that, anybody that wants to. Rob, you want to take that one? We're all, we're also we're also kind. Of, we all respect each other so much. We're waiting for the other to, to, to say something brilliant, as as these people will do. Um, it, it is not double jeopardy because there was never a formal not guilty verdict. And that is usually the prerequisite for a claim of double jeopardy. Of the six trials, um, four of them ended in convictions and death sentences. Uh, each of those was overturned on appeal for prosecutorial misconduct. Two of them, the ones in which there was more than one black juror on the panel, those two ended up in hung juries because one or more jurors believed he was not guilty. Um, and so that's why the prosecutor was able to come back and come back and try him again and again and again, uh, even though there never was a legally valid verdict of guilt. Uh, each time it was overturned, and of course the last time it was overturned by the US Supreme Court, which concluded that uh, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had relentlessly tried to rid the jury of black people over the course of the six trials. And it was that that caused the last reversal. And it was with that posture that the case was sent back for a potential seventh trial. And in fact, wasn't the prosecutor cited for prosecutorial misconduct as well? Uh, you know, I know, Tucker, you you dealt with that a little bit. Can you want to talk about that? Well, the first two trials were reversed for prosecutorial misconduct. Um, interestingly, the the issue which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, the, the race bias and the selection of the jury, um, Mr. Flowers raised that issue in the first two appeals, but the Mississippi Supreme Court never got to it because it found other misconduct that warranted a reversal. It wasn't until the third conviction um, that the court got to the issue of race bias and found that, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but essentially it was the most egregious um, example of race bias in Batson, the controlling case that the court had ever seen. So um, you know, even by the midpoint of um, an astounding six trials, uh, the prosecutor had racked up um, a perfect batting average on prosecutorial misconduct. It's kind of amazing, and, and you know. So, let's let's move down to to Mr. Hill. I'll ask you this question because you you've done uh, capital defense, and and you know, why why did the Supreme Court hear this case if if the Mississippi Supreme Court made a decision, and were they required to grant cert or certiorari in this case? 
Uh, they certainly weren't required to grant certiorari. I think uh, they take on for merits hearings somewhere between 60 and 70 cases a year out of six or 7,000 petitions that are filed each year. So they weren't required. You know, it's rare, it's a rarity uh, that they take a case, uh, sorry, uh, Batson, which was a key issue uh, uh, in this case, was decided in 1986. Uh, what's remarkable about this case, and perhaps what caught the eye of the jury, was this seemed to be a strange, almost persecution, uh, and that uh, the prosecutor seemed to be a scofflaw violator of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. Uh, you know, sort of coldly. Uh, you know, defying both uh, Mississippi application of Batson and the clear lines of Batson versus Kentucky, the Supreme Court precedent. So it's probably in the nature of those, uh, the two or three other cases, Dwayne Buck, Foster in Georgia, these were cases where the race uh, issues were so blatant, so disturbing that the Supreme Court felt, I think, driven to take it to fire shot across the bow against uh, these um, prosecutors who were uh, who were refusing to follow the bright lines that they thought that they had set down. Okay, Professor Gerson, I've got to jump in. You're our our teacher here. What is certiorari? What what did you call this? Certiorari. Well, that's uh, the court. Uh, and I should let one of the experts take this, but the Supreme Court of the United States can hear cases on direct appeal, and the, uh, but they can also grant certiorari, which is more uh, not, and it's not mandatory that they grant certiorari. They, they make a decision uh, that they want to, that a case is important that they need to grant certiorari. Sometimes they'll do it because uh, the Fifth Circuit will come to a decision on, on a, a matter, and the Eleventh Circuit will have come to the exact opposite decision, and they've got to resolve that conflict between the circuits. So it's just a way for the court to hear cases more discretionarily uh, in, in many cases. Well, we are discussing the Curtis Flowers case with our guests from, gosh, we've got a litany, the Mississippi Innocence Project. We've got folks from the uh, different defense attorneys and also from the Mississippi Center for Justice. We're not taking your calls today, but you're listening. We're discussing the Curtis Flowers case, and you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. 
this is in legal terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we are talking about the Curtis Flowers case with guests from the Mississippi Innocence Project. We've got folks from the Mississippi Center for Justice and some capital defense attorneys. And we will have a link on this show's web page and on the podcast where you can find more information about this Supreme Court ruling. Well, Liz, this is this is such a great conversation. And, and I want to ask um, Mr. Abram, Jonathan Abram, this question, because uh, as Mr. Hill just talked about, um, he, he said that um, it was the court didn't have to grant cert, but there were good reasons for them to grant certiorari. In this case, they, they even granted certiorari twice. Would, would you talk a little bit about that? They did actually grant cert twice. Um, uh, the, there was a case called Foster that presented another egregious Batson challenge. I think maybe Henderson mentioned Foster earlier. Um, our case, Mr. Flower's case, was pending on petition for review, petition for cert at the same time Foster. And so when Foster was decided, the court vacated the conviction of Mr. Flowers and sent the case back to the Mississippi Supreme Court for reconsideration in light of what the Supreme Court had said in their decision in Foster. The Mississippi Supreme Court then essentially just said, makes no difference to us, same result, reaffirmed the conviction. And so our colleagues at Cornell, who I wish were here to describe this process, because they were just, they're just absolutely brilliant. Sherry Johnson argued the case in the Supreme Court. Our team, they, they petitioned again for cert. Again, the court didn't have to grant it. Again, the likelihood of a grant is, you know, is on the order of 1%, and yet the court granted sort of second time in our case on them and, and heard the case on the merits. So that's why there were actually two grants in this case. It's amazing. And, and by the way, if, if any of our listeners want to uh, listen to Sherry Johnson's oral argument, you can actually hear Supreme Court oral arguments on a website called OYEZ, O-Y-E-Z. And we, we will have that uh, posted on our website after, with this uh, program. Um, because it's really a great way to see how the case developed and, and to hear the arguments and to even hear Justice Kavanaugh uh, reading the opinion of the court, not the opinion, but the decision of the court. Uh, Rob, we, we've said the words Batson challenge. We've talked about a Batson challenge a lot so far. Would you, would you talk a little bit about what a Batson challenge is? Sure. Um, and the word Batson comes from the name of a 1986 case in the U.S. Supreme Court called Batson versus Kentucky, which set out certain rules designed to prevent racial discrimination by lawyers in jury selection. And typically what will happen is a lawyer uh, will be striking um, uh, members of a particular race, usually usually striking black lawyers, I mean, black jurors, potential jurors. Uh, it also can be done on the basis of sex. 
Um, and then the, uh, the adversary, the, the opposing counsel, will complain about this and raise what's called a Batson objection uh, and raise a Batson challenge to the striking of this particular juror. And the challenges become more and more um, weighty if the lawyer, as did the prosecutor in the Curtis Flowers case, continues striking jurors of the same race or sex. Here, of course, is striking nearly every black juror that came up, Doug Evans would strike them over the course of the six trials. And so the lawyers would raise the objection and the judge would call on the person who struck the juror with these peremptory strikes for which no reason generally needs to be given. The lawyer can just, the lawyer has a certain number of strikes at the beginning of the trial. In capital cases in Mississippi, it's usually 12 and can say, uh, this is the third or fourth or fifth or sixth black juror that's been struck. He needs to give a reason as to why he's doing it. And then the person who strikes the jurors is supposed to give a legitimate non-racial reason. And Doug Evans' reasons were, it, it was pretty clear based on the pattern that they were because he was trying to keep black people from sitting on that jury. And he gave other reasons but they were flimsy in many situations because you could compare the black jurors he struck with similar white jurors who he did not strike. And that's why at the end of these six trials, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the conviction by saying that Evans had pursued a relentless and determined effort to rid the jury of, of black individuals. And as Tucker mentioned earlier, the same thing happened when the Mississippi Supreme Court reversed the, the conviction and death sentence in the third trial. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, it's, it, it sounds like it would be hard to prove intentional discrimination in jury selection. Uh, and especially since the Mississippi Supreme Court uh, it applied Batson in its decision and found no intentional discrimination. But this team was able to prove at the U.S. Supreme Court um, that clear error took place in its determination. What, can I ask what specific arguments were made? Um, and Jonathan, do you want to take this one or? Um, sure. Well, um, I, I think I think the key in this case that made it so unusual and so such a compelling Batson challenge was that was the thing that makes this case so surprising to anyone who hears about it. There were six trials, and if you do the math. If you have six trials of the same person for the same crime, the prosecutor will have challenged scores of people over the course of those six trials uh, and will have given rationales and justifications, as Rob just mentioned. But when you have that many instances of challenge, you're able actually to look at a pattern that extends out beyond the normal one case. And when you look at that pattern over these six trials, um, the Supreme Court found that there was just no plausible explanation for the pattern, um, the, a pattern in which the prosecutor struck virtually every black juror from 
uh, from consideration, there was no plausible explanation for that pattern other than that he was striking based on race. The problem in Batson cases is that you never have six trials. This case is unprecedented in that regard, and you usually only have one trial. And so, as you say, in that situation where you have you know, a, a, a large handful of strikes to look at, you really don't have the almost statistically significant population of strikes to, look to, to analyze. You have one-off situations, and as you say, in that situation, it can be very difficult to prove race discrimination. We are talking with guests. Let's go through the, let's run through the, our alphabet. Associate Dean Tucker Carlson, Director of the George Cochran Mississippi Innocence Project. Jonathan Abram, who is a pro bono lawyer with Hogan Lovells. Robert McDuff, Mississippi Center for Justice. Jackson and uh, Henderson Hill, noted capital defense attorney. We're talking about the Curtis Flowers case. Now, we recorded this broadcast so that we could get everybody together for this discussion, so we can't take your calls or emails today. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone. Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert. I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There are lots of different podcasting platforms out there. I happen to use Podcast Addict on my Android. I downloaded the app from the uh, store and put it on my phone. I can touch the plus. It takes me to a page to search for podcasts, and I can just type in in legal terms in the search area. It brings up the in legal terms show. I can touch the photo of it and then subscribe. Then I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about the Curtis Flowers guests. Got some of my guests' name wrong the last time. It's Associate Dean Tucker Carrington, director of the George Cochran Mississippi Innocence Project. Jonathan Abrams, a pro bono lawyer from Hogan Lovells. Robert McDuff, Mississippi Center for Justice. And Henderson Hill, noted capital defense attorney. And they have joined myself and Professor Richard Gershon for this show that is recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls today. Liz, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm going to ask the next question to Henderson, and that really is, why is Batson so important to the criminal justice system in the United States? What, what makes this, you know, such, such a compelling uh, case? Well, uh, Richard, Batson is the U.S. Supreme Court's 
strongest, clearest effort to respond to a history of excluding African-American citizens from full participation uh, as jurors. And that's just a small piece of what's widely described as the racial reckoning that our country is going through now, a discussion about racial disparities that run through the criminal justice system. And one of the things that uh, was so remarkable about Justice Kavanaugh's opinion was his recounting of American history and just how persistent uh, discrimination against African-American citizens and their uh, participation in the jury box has been. I mean, literally since, uh, since the uh, uh, Civil Rights Act of 1875, just a decade after the Civil War, a clear declaration uh, that uh, the free, uh, formerly enslaved, should fully participate in jurors. That was ignored by states uh, through legislative acts prohibiting blacks from participating. And the Supreme Court shot that down quickly. But what Justice Kavanaugh described was a series of covert techniques used by uh, the courts and prosecutors to maintain this discriminatory effect. And so this has been a black mark on our justice system for decades. Uh, and Batson, uh, just as Kavanaugh takes pride in Batson as a remedy that sort of completely uh, resolves the issue. He looked at what happened in Mr. Flowers' case and said, well, you crossed that black line, that, 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 that bright line. Well, what many uh, defense lawyers and observers realize is Batson has been pretty ineffective uh, in, in curbing discrimination. In my own state of North Carolina, in the 30-odd years since Batson, the courts have not re uh, reversed one, uh, one conviction or sentence based on Batson. And you noted that the Supreme Court of Mississippi has uh, done that multiple times. Even in this case, it's done it multiple times. So I think Justice Kavanaugh took this case so serious because it is the Supreme Court's strongest, clearest effort uh, to, to knock out uh, race discrimination in the court system. And our question is you know, just how effective is it? And the evidence indicates it's not a very effective uh, deterrent or protection against discrimination. Thank you. That's, that's, a, that's a, a great uh, answer and an important answer. Uh, to that question, and I, I think I'll, most of the listeners don't don't even know that that Batson is is something that uh, is even it is a part of our criminal justice system. Dean Carrington, I'll, I'll address the next question to you, and that is: while the case was on appeal, you and the Hogan Lovell's team, which included Jonathan Abram, reinvestigated the case against Mr. Flowers and filed hundreds of pages of post conviction papers arguing they should be granted a new trial. And what did you find when you, when you did that? Well, um, before I answer the question, I have to um, get back to Liz's misintroduction of me as Tucker Carlson. I know this is radio and not TV, but your listeners should rest assured that I don't, I'm not wearing a preppy tie and I'm not frothing at the mouth. So I'm definitely not uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, but I, uh, when we got involved with, Jonathan and the team at Hogan Lovells when the clinic at Ole Miss Law School got involved, we did two things. Um, one of the things we did right away was we 
um, consistent with Batson. We knew, we knew Batson was an issue on direct appeal, um, but we felt like given the record that Doug Evans had racked up, as Jonathan mentioned, over the course of six trials, that there might be more out there outside of the Flowers trials, which we were allowed to potentially get into in post-conviction litigation. So uh, one summer, about five years ago, we um, kind of blanketed uh, Doug Evans's district. We went to every courthouse uh, in his district and we researched all of the history of his strikes of jurors in death penalty cases during the 20 years of his tenure. It was an extraordinarily difficult effort. It took a solid two weeks just to get the data, um, thanks to Hogan Lovells and the team who just were all in, um, basically moved down here for two weeks. Um, we collected all this data, and then we retained a couple statisticians. And uh, the result was, at least on this particular issue, on the, on the Batson issue, was consistent with what Sherry Johnson and Keir Weibel and the Cornell Death Penalty Clinic folks had found in Mr. Flowers' trials, that um, the, 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 the race bias numbers, the statistical um, um, proof, the statistical evidence of what Mr. Evans was doing, not only um, in Flowers, but across capital trials during his tenure was just stunning, just absolutely stunning. As, as um, Henderson said, uh, he and his office were effectively um, preventing full participation by prospective jurors in his district. And by prospective jurors, I mean black folks. Um, but we also spent a lot of time reinvestigating the facts of the case. Um, and at some point during um, our investigation, American public media, uh, which I think Richard, you probably have a question, separate question about, uh, but journalists from American public media show In the Dark got, became interested in the case and in a sort of complimentary way began their own investigation. So when we ultimately filed our post-conviction papers, which you uh, mentioned in your question, it included both this more comprehensive set of Batson data, and it included a robust reinvestigation of the factual piece of the case, which essentially undermined the state's prosecution of Mr. Flowers and suggested that there were um, other potential third-party perpetrators, all of whom, just on the face of it, um, were uh, or should have been um, suspects in the case, uh, in addition to, you know, to Mr. Flowers, who was the state's only suspect, according to them. It's, it really is. It's such a fascinating case, and, and, you know, and the, the outcome that you all affected uh, for Mr. Flowers is, is pretty amazing. Um, Jonathan, I, this is not a question I had on the list, but I, I have to ask this because Hogan Lovells, unlike you know the, our clinics here at, at, at the law school or the ACLU or uh, the, the Mississippi Center for Justice, you know they're not-for-profit organizations that that uh, do good public service litigation. How does a, a, a firm like Hogan Lovells get involved in these kind of cases? You know, it's a good question. Um, I mean, it's sort of a transactional answer. How did we happen to get involved in this case? But Hogan 
Hogan Lovells and and before that Hogan and Hartson, uh, its predecessor firm in the United States, of whom I was part with whom I was partner, um, has done pro bono work quite consistently for decades. In fact, it's why I and many others joined the firm in the first place back in a decade that will go unmentioned because it's so long ago. Um, so it's an interesting question to ask, why do big firms do this? Because nobody pays them to do it. Um, and there are lots of answers to that. But in, in Mr. Flowers' case, I keep wanting to call him Curtis because we've all gotten to know him so well. In Mr. Flowers' case, uh, it seemed quite evident, the injustice that had happened. And from the very beginning, that, that appeared to be so evidence. The evidence against Mr. Flowers was so thin uh, as to be nearly non-existent and highly questionable. Uh, the Batson history, the race discrimination involved in the case was so extreme that we simply decided, look, this is, this is, this is a case that we need to get involved in. And before I finish, I should say, there is, you know, it's a target-rich environment for big law firms in the sense that there, are, there is so much need out there uh, in death penalty cases and in other areas of pro bono work uh, that, that you know, there's no way even the largest law firms in the world, including Hogan Lovells, can possibly uh, address all of it. But that's why uh, I think we, certainly it's why I, and I think it's why we the, at the firm decided to get involved uh, six or seven years ago. And in the course of our early years in the case and in reinvestigating the case against Curtis Flowers, it became more and more evident that there was simply nothing there. Uh, there, there, there really, the evidence just, just fell apart, uh, both as a, res, as a result of what we found in our investigation and what the um, in the dark investigators found in the course of their investigation. So that's kind of the history of it. To get our team together for this show, we've had to record it. So this is a recording of In Legal Terms from September 2020. We're discussing the Curtis Flowers case with lawyers who participated in uh, the, uh, the appeal and in getting this to the Supreme Court. Uh, lawyers from the Mississippi Innocence Project, from the Mississippi Center for Justice, and a couple of defense attorneys. So we can't take your phone calls today. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. about law, healthcare, and gardening. We delve into arts, cooking, and people and places that make our state great. Contribute now at mpbonline.org. MPB and you, let's do this together. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. 
Uh, up next is our 11 a.m. Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. We've got a special show today. It's a recording so that we could get all of our commenters together so we can't take your phone calls. It's September 2020. We're talking with the attorneys involved in the Curtis Flowers case. We have Associate Dean Tucker Carrington, Director of the George Cochran Mississippi Innocence Project. We have Jonathan Abram, a pro bono lawyer with Hogan Lovells. Robert McDuff from the Mississippi Center for Justice, and Henderson Hill, noted capital defense attorney. Thank you, Liz. And uh, well, I, I'm going to ask this to our, our, our Mississippi uh, uh, natives um, and Tucker or, or Rob. A few months after the Supreme Court decision, the district attorney that you mentioned, Doug Evans, who had prosecuted Mr. Flowers through six trials, withdrew from the case saying it would not be about, so it won't be about him. Uh, and you mentioned there were problems with his prosecutions along the way, certainly. Uh, the Attorney General of the, of the state, Lynn Fitch, took over. And how did that come about, and is that good news? Robert, you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. We had, um, right after the case came back to the trial court from the U.S. Supreme Court, we filed a motion for bail. We filed a motion to dismiss the charges, and we filed a motion to recuse the prosecutor. Um, fortunately, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, realized that um, you know, he, he could not continue under, in the case. And, and, and so he, uh, three weeks after Curtis was granted bail in December of 2019, Doug Evans withdrew. The new attorney general, Lynn Fitch, was appointed, and we did regard it as good news. We knew Doug Evans wasn't fair. He hadn't been fair during any of the times, uh, during these unprecedented six trials. And so she had a team to review the case. We presented a lot of information to her. We met over video with her review team. Uh, she conducted a thorough review and ultimately uh, dismissed the charges, which was clearly the right decision in this case. And that when you say that she dismissed the charges, does that mean so Curtis Flowers is free now? Is that is that right? That, that's right. He is free now. He was he actually left jail for the first time in 23 years in December 2019 when we won our bail motion before Judge Loper because our first goal when the case came back was to get Curtis out of jail. Uh, then over the ensuing months. She reviewed the case and ultimately filed a motion to dismiss the case with prejudice, which means Curtis Flowers, after being prosecuted an unprecedented six times, cannot be prosecuted again. The judge granted the motion based on all the facts and circumstances in the case. And now Curtis Flowers is a free man. He has no restrictions on him or where he goes. And uh, he does not have to worry about going back to prison uh, based on these, these totally uh, ridiculous charges that were brought against him never should have been brought in the first place. And, you know, so that, that may lead us back to the, I want to go back to the dissent in the the, uh, the, the Supreme Court decision. There, there was a seven to two decision, and two two justices uh, joined in the dissent, uh, written by Justice Thomas. And essentially, Justice Thomas's point was: right, so exclusion of a juror doesn't that really affect that juror, and not 
necessarily affect the defendant? I mean, does, how does that affect the defendant's rights? So, Tucker, would you want to talk about that? Maybe, maybe Henderson and I could tag team on this one, and I'll, I'll start. It, it, it is true that Batson is, is, says it's concerned about the harm to the juror, and that's, that's important for all the reasons that Henderson mentioned earlier. Um, but one of the things about Justice Thomas's dissent, which I think some people have missed, is the second part, where he talks about race in the criminal justice system. And he says race matters. It matters, of course, in picking jurors. But it also matters to the defendant because, among other things, um, different people, including different, uh, different genders, different races, different ethnicities, have different life experiences. And certainly in the South, certainly in Mississippi, sometimes you can have uh, the starkest life experiences are based on race. And the Curtis Flowers case, as, as Henderson and others have said, is just such a stark example, an extraordinary case of the 61 white jurors who served over the course of the six trials every single one of them voted to convict. And of the 11 black jurors who served, five voted to acquit. That's extraordinary. Race matters. It matters. Um, and yes, uh, you know, it's, it's true that it matters with respect to the juror. That's what Batson says. But you can't get away from the fact that it also matters to a defendant who sits in judgment of him. And the Curtis Flowers case is just emblematic of that. And I think um, Henderson has a really interesting point about how that intersects with, uh, with the death penalty. Yeah, I think it's, it's so clear that a person's lived experience is going to inform every part of their judgment, their evaluation of witness testimony, uh, their evaluation of character. Uh, and, and these are things that were plain as the nose on one's face uh, to Justice Kavanaugh and in an odd way to uh, Justice Thomas, that race matters. Uh, you can't imagine 1875, uh, recently enslaved uh, people could be excluded from trials involving black people, and you think that would be fair. In Flowers, 41 out of 42 African Americans were struck by uh, Mr. Evans. And the only one that wasn't uh, was not struck because he had run out of peremptory challenges. So yeah, race matters. Uh, I think other parts of people's lived experience also matters. There are rules in death penalty jury selection that excludes a disproportionate number of African-Americans, yes, but also excludes a disproportionate number of people of faith, of, of Catholics. Uh, who follow the teaching of the Pope, for example, that all life is sacred, including the lives of uh, people caught up in the criminal justice system who may or may not be guilty. Uh, these are aspects of a citizen's life that they bring to the jury box. And in some very strange and twisted way, in capital punishment most especially, so many of those people with lived experience that is relevant to the judgment of both guilt and innocence, but whether life or death is appropriate, are excluded. And I think Batson is an imperfect effort to counter that. Uh, and states like California and North Carolina are struggling 
with how they can improve on Batson, uh, give some real teeth to uh, ending protectural exclusion of citizens who are otherwise qualified to sit as jurors. And Richard, can I add one point here? Um, the jurors during the, the, the prior six trials not only were racially stacked, the juries weren't not only racially stacked, they didn't hear all of the evidence in part because Doug Evans didn't disclose it all. Once it all came out, and after the great investigations done by the defense team that was working on this case uh, before Henderson and I joined, as well as in the dark, once all of the evidence came out, it was clear to the attorney general, it's clear to, to everyone who looked at it, that Curtis Flowers is an innocent man. He never should have been prosecuted in the first place. He 20, spent 23 years in prison for something he didn't do. But finally, this prosecution is gone because this is the wrong man. This is an innocent man who was wrongly imprisoned. I think that's a great place uh, to end, end the show. I mean, I can't thank you, the four of you, enough for being here and what an impactful decision this was on Curtis Flowers' life, but also on, on our state. And hopefully some things will change out of it. So thank you again. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure being with you. We appreciate all of our guests who are on in legal terms today. Associate Dean Tucker Car Car Carrington, Director of George Cochran Mississippi Innocence Project, Jonathan Abram, a pro bono lawyer with Hogan Levels, Robert McDuff, Mississippi Center for Justice, Jackson Hill, noted capital defense attorney. That is wrapping us up for today's In Legal Terms. For Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill, and we hope you'll join us next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.